This episode is powered by Safety FM. In this week's episode, I speak to Kevin Yarbrough. Kevin Yarbrough is my business partner for my company, and I should say our company, Shelbro Safety LLC. So uh, Kevin and I met as instructors for the Certified Occupational Safety Specialist Program, and we had a great time doing this conversation. We met six, seven years ago. We kind of try to work it out in this conversation, you know, trying to figure out how long ago it was. But uh, Kevin was uh, worked his way into OSHA, and he has started out as, I guess, the first position, as you would, when you get started in OSHA, and he worked his all the way up to the assistant area director and a, an area director in the Tampa office. So it was really cool uh, being able to talk to him. And uh, he went to private, I would say about five years ago or something, I would imagine, because uh, just after we maybe six years just after we met he left osha and uh, just went private and started his own business yarborough safety solutions and uh, we had basically our own businesses which he still has yarborough safety solutions and i owned osha compliance help and we started doing business together more and more and more and decided well that's dumb why don't we just start a business together and do this together so that's when we came up with Shellbro, and that was actually Yarbrough's idea. So he was kind of, well, we were over at his house one day, we were just going back and forth with names, back and forth, and uh, came up with Shellbro. And I was like, nice, I like that. So we got Shellbro Safety LLC as quickly as we could. We bought the domain name Shellbro.com, and uh, we've done a lot of OSHA compliance work together. So in this conversation, we really talk about a few things. First, Kevin tells you a little bit about how he got into the business. And uh, then after that, we uh, kind of talk a little bit about uh, the OSHA side and what you should be thinking of if you are calling yourself an OSHA consultant. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. And then also, we also thought uh, started talking about training and differences between different types and disciplines of training and what he suggested if you want to get into that keynote speaker space as he does and uh, we even got to just talk a little bit about you know uh, one of the questions I asked him is what would older Kevin tell younger Kevin about the safety career and entering into OSHA and all that so it was, it was really a fun conversation you can tell that we have a good time whenever we're together so uh, you have to go through all the frat boyness with us i don't know if that's even the right word to say but we just we have fun it's really cool and uh, i i appreciate him uh, taking a chance and having me as a business partner uh, and truly i he is a mentor and a friend and this was a great, great experience for me. So I'd like to welcome you, Kevin Yarbrough. All right. My name is Kevin Yarbrough. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm the owner of Yarbrough Safety Solutions located in Valerico, Florida. 
and I am a safety professional. And you're the face of Shelbro Safety. <laughs> yes, and the face of Shelbro Safety. Thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> I could be the brains, but you're the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, okay. I have no problem with that. <laughs> that's the first thing he told me. You're like, you be the brains. You do all the day to day. I just want to be the face. <laughs> well, we got to go with our strengths, Sheldon. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> if you guys haven't guessed yet, Kevin's my business partner with Shelbro Safety. So uh, we, how long do we go back now, Kevin? Is it like five years now? Yeah, it seems longer. It does, doesn't it? Yeah, it seems like it feels like I've known you a lot longer than that, but it's probably been about five years yeah five maybe six because i think i was with cost for about six ninety not ninety what am i saying uh 2014 i think i started with cost so yeah so we started at the same time so it is about six then because we're at 2020 so we're, we're just about six yeah maybe even seven who knows because <laughs> we had to do the idc before that right 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 hmm that's how we met and we actually uh, hit it off in our instructor development course and we said hey man i, I like you i like your style <laughs> <laughs> was that me or you talking to people uh, was talking? you said you like my style my swag <laughs> you got you got more of that than i do <laughs> not bad for an old guy <laughs> and every time you walk in a room everybody's like it's like E.F. Hutton. <laughs> Kevin's here. <laughs> Kevin and the other guy. <laughs> Kevin and the smart guy. <laughs> That's great. Uh, what's your safety journey? Go ahead and tell us, everybody, your, your safety journey. Uh, how'd, you, how'd you get through this whole thing? Oh, man. I don't know. How far should I go back? Well, Terry. Oh yeah, well that's where it started. Well, once I uh, you're, uh, when you were uh, working for your dad, maybe even that too. Well, well yeah, when I was, my dad was a contractor and I worked with him in New Jersey and worked with a lot of unions as a laborer. I wasn't really in the safety, but I was in the other side of it where I was actually exposed to the work and all the conditions. Surprisingly, back then I had no idea what I was exposed to, but uh, later. Uh, I attended uh, college at the University of North Carolina A&T in Greensboro, where I majored in industrial education <clears throat> and where I started to get some idea of the, the industry of uh, construction and construction technology. I graduated A&T in 79 and was immediately enrolled in the military as I was in ROTC joined ROTC, where I was an artillery officer upon graduation. And I went to Fort Sill, Oklahoma, where I learned how to be an artillery officer. After I finished a year of training in Fort Sill, I was shipped off to Germany for three and a half years, where I was an artillery officer slash ammunition officer. It was when I was assigned ammunition officer where I began my journey more into specific safety because about a year after being in Germany, I was assigned the nuclear weapons safety officer, nuclear weapons courier officer, commonly known as a SWO, special weapons officer. <clears throat> I attended another six months of school to get training on that where they taught you how to handle those type of weapons and 
how to destroy them, how to carry them from place to place. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and then after that, I resigned my commission uh, about five years after that. And I was selected to attend the Army Material Command School in Indiana because of my, my background in artillery safety. The military didn't want to just let me go after spending that much money training me. So I went back to the Department of the Army as a safety and health officer with a concentration in explosive safety. As I was attending school in Charlestown, Indiana, that was about eight months where I got specific training in that area. And then I got more training in OSHA. Fast forward, I was stationed in upstate New York at Seneca Army Depot, where I was the explosive safety officer for the depot. And we had an inspection about three years after that by OSHA. They were rather impressed with the explosive safety program. They asked who ran it, which was me. And that's when OSHA offered me a job to come work with the government. I uh, didn't take the job initially because I really didn't want to go work for uh, another OSHA. government. <laughs> but they convinced me that would be my best bet. So in 1990, I was shipped off to Tampa, Florida, where I became a junior field inspector. And from there, I've held every position from junior inspector to journeyman inspector to senior inspector to team lead inspector to assistant director. And finally, I was appointed as director of the office for a short while before I retired. So that was my safety journey as it were. I've been involved in almost every kind of investigation or inspection you can think of in those 20, 24 years I was with Ocean. Yeah, and from there, I know that you had like a, I know from from like our conversations and, and being so close to you that throughout that, that whole time, even one of the uh, jobs you were doing was training the inspectors on, on what to do and, and the, the type of training they should have when they first got started, I would imagine, right? Absolutely. I uh, <clears throat> found out that while I was with OSHA, I had a talent for instruction and training. So uh, while I was in the office, I became a training officer for new inspectors, especially in the area of trenching and excavation. That became my favorite area. And then I trained them in scaffolding and then I began training them in various other areas. And uh, that was very successful. So uh, I became an ins- a trainer for the office. And, and in my last couple of years, I, the government sent me to a course in uh, Chicago where they were getting ready to launch a program of training safety officers in the government in OSHA to train assistant directors and directors on how to get the most out of their field inspectors. And I was selected to be one of those trainers to do that. Hmm. So my training went from the office to potentially all over the country. And you did a bunch of the, the speaking at some of the, the OSHA internal events, right? Absolutely. Um, the area director at that time was very, very talented man, but very introverted. 
and he did not like to stand in front of a group of people and talk. It was like Just like you. <laughs> <laughs> For him to get a presentation was uh, like pulling teeth. So he noticed that I had a flair for it. So he said, from now on, uh, whenever I can, I'm going to send you out to give these presentations and uh, appear at these various organizations and make uh, award ceremonies so that uh, he didn't have to do it. He didn't like it. I relished it. It's like, uh, just point me in the right direction. I'll be there and I will be on. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. It's like whenever I have you and in, invite you in one of my classes, it's so funny because I'm a my my personality is teacher explainer and practical guy, you know. And you come in and you're flair. <laughs> gets a hold of you and you give them the, the practical side with the flair. <laughs> and every time you leave my class, my class is like, oh, <laughs> they're like, what just hit us? <laughs> and they love it. And I'm like, yeah, now you got me. You had Kevin. Now you got me. <laughs> well, I just think you can attribute to my flair is because I enjoy people. I enjoy meeting people. I'm a gregarious person. I uh, And I like training. So those two together uh, make for a good combination. And plus, I, I since uh, I think two years before I left OSHA, I started taking a lot of courses in public speaking and presentations and how to conduct them. And that was very, very helpful. So that it's really paid off. While we're on the topic, uh, for, for those that are uh, thinking about the training aspect and then the presentation aspect and then the other thing, which is the side of speaking that you've been really into and I'm trying to get into myself, which is the... Uh, not only the guest speaker, but being a keynote speaker. What's yeah. the differences between those those kind of uh, disciplines, if you will? The difference between a guest speaker and a keynote speaker? Yeah, and then also just a trainer. And a trainer. Well, let us start with the similarities. The similarities are you're the individual parting information or, or guidance to a group. So therefore, you have to develop a personality and style that the group can relate to. Secondly, the similarity is you must know your subject. You have to know your subject. If you don't know your subject, that group, whomever it is, um, they're going to pick you apart and probably lose interest in a very short period of time. Yeah. Now, to answer your question, the difference between a guest speaker, a, a guest speaker you generally are invited in to talk about a subject, and then usually it's not more than 15 to 20 minutes. And you're, you're going to cover a specific area for the person that invited you there. You don't want to take over the program. You just want to do your part and hand it back over to the instructor. Okay. As a keynote speaker, you're only going to speak between 45 minutes and an hour, hour and a half. And as a keynote speaker, you, when I said you have to know your subject, you really have to know your subject matter because the more successful keynote speakers, they don't, they don't demand that the audience pay attention. They invite the audience into their, 
their presentation. And the difference is once you invite the audience, there's techniques to invite the audience, they really take ownership of it. And once they take ownership of it, you have them. But if you uh, demand that they follow you, you're usually going to lose them. So being a keynote, you have to be, I call myself an, an edutainer. <clears throat> that is an educator and an entertainer. And I've worked on the, uh, the education side and I've worked on the entertainment side. I don't entertain just to be a, a clown gesture or uh, a joker on the stage. The entertainment is, is integral and part of the presentation. In other words, I'm not adding jokes and putting funny things into the speech. The funny things are the entertaining things that are covered in the presentation are, are coming out of the material in the presentation. And I guess the simpler way to say that is, you, again, you really have to know your subject matter to find the humor in the subject matter. If you don't know your subject matter, you're never going to find the humor. The humor has to be organic to the presentation. It can't be presentation, okay, let me add something funny in here. No, it has to be organic and integral. And that takes a lot of, of work. Now, you can't always uh, be successful in being humorous, but uh, there's a lot of ways to gain the attention and an interest of the audience besides being humorous. I just tend to focus on the humor side because that's my personality. Did you get all that from uh, from your training when you started doing like a certified speaking professional and some of the yeah, other yes. things? Yes, Toastmasters was very good. I, I was in Toastmasters for three years and then I would, was introduced to professional world-class speakers. They hold uh, training sessions, a lot of time you're in Las Vegas. So I flew to Las Vegas several times to, to uh, spend four days in intensive training where they're critiquing you and you have to spontaneously talk about things using the tools that they give you. And then finally, I attended the Speakers Academy under the National Speakers Association. And that academy was a year long, very intensive. But after you get through it, you really understand the what the profession of speaking is all about. People make a, uh, people with good information make the mistake of thinking all they have to do is get in front of a podium or a lectern and just start talking. Oh, <laughs> good luck with that. Because you have a room full of bodies and the minds are somewhere else. It takes some skill to cultivate a, a, the ability to grab the audience's attention and hold it for 45 minutes to an hour. So yes, I I got a lot of my training from Toastmasters and Speak National Speakers Association. And I would advise anyone in the training field <clears throat> that if you fail to belong or take advantage of clubs like Toastmasters, National Speakers Association, or even private uh, organizations that train you to be a speaker, I, I think it's going to be very difficult for you to be very successful at doing training or being viewed upon as a subject matter expert in what you're doing. Do they need like um, a book or a product or anything like that to get the door open for them? Well, 
You know, that's, that's, that's a good question, Shelvin, because uh, during one of my many training sessions in Las Vegas, the last one I went to, they said that writing a book is akin to a business card nowadays. If you really want to get your, your, yourself established as a speaker or a trainer, write a book. It doesn't have to be a, a voluminous book. It can be 100 page, 150 page. Just get published. I write some articles and get published. Mm-hmm. And that will give you some more credibility on, on the speaking circuit and on the training circuit. So, yeah, uh, writing a book is like a business card now. And as a matter of fact, I'll tell you what one author told me. He said he wrote a book not so much to be on the New York Times bestseller list. He wrote it so that he could be called an author and that he had a product that he could share with the audience, whether he was there or not. Hmm. Very cool. And I know for uh, keynotes, you know, I I have on my public uh, website for me doing a keynote uh, with a bunch of topics is 3,500. And I figured someone like you, you probably up in that, that 8,000 or whatever range. I don't want I don't want you to give away your, your secret sauce, but uh, as far as, you know, keynotes and, and those, let's say they've, they've got one book, they've got uh, enough credentials that people know that, you know, the, the alphabet soup behind their names and maybe even a, an appearance here or there on their local newspaper or local TV. Uh, what do you think a keynote like that might be getting? Okay, I'm sorry, Sean. I just caught part of that because you're a little bit muffled. Could you just repeat that again? Yeah, yeah. So the scenario, if you got me, you got me good or decent? Yeah, I got you now. Okay, uh, the scenario, let's say one book uh, person is uh, influential in that, you know, they have their uh, doctorate or their master's or maybe even uh, uh, some sort of... uh, I would say influence in the field mm-hmm. and maybe to the point where they even can say that they've been uh, quoted in some sort of media or, or something similar or even a local newspaper. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much do you think they might get? Like if they're going to do a keynote. Oh, with the, uh, oh, the fees, what the fees are. Yeah. <laughs> you really want to get my secret sauce away. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, uh, it's like this, uh, for the, for, if, if you go through like the National Speakers Academy or National Speakers Association, they will give you a range and generally the range they give for a beginner speaker, it's going to be somewhere between two and $4,000 for an hour keynote. Now, that's for a good product because once once you give a presentation, your reputation is out there. Everybody who is in that room is going to be is going to boast about you, or they're going to just say, "This is the worst night of my life. I'll never get that hour back." Yeah. and that's gonna that's gonna destroy your speaking career. So, you know, it's between two and four thousand, or depending on what you're comfortable with. When I first started, I went and spoke for free. Just to get the stage experience, just to say I'm getting more confident with myself to being on stage. Or I would go for, you know, give me gas money and and how much it's going to cost me to stay in a hotel overnight and I'm good. 
but but that was for me because um, I understood that once you started charging the fee, the 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 evaluation begins. Well, it starts before that, but once you charge a fee, everybody's going to be a critic, and you better deliver because if you don't, your career is going to be doomed before you have a chance to get off the ground. But uh, it's it, that's an individual thing. So once I think my first presentation where I charged a fee, I think it was like five hundred dollars, and it was for an hour, and uh, I had powerpoints, I had little. Um, little handouts and everything like that. I mean, I really, really went overboard, but I was doing it more for perfecting my craft. Yeah. And the money was important, but it wasn't the most important. What was most important was having people walk away and say, man, that guy was really good. That guy really knew his subject matter. Man, he was really interesting. I thought he was just talking to me. That's the kind of thing I was looking for. And then once I got comfortable with it, uh, when I went through the Speakers Academy, that's when I, I found out, okay, I need to start charging with a professional charge. It's, it's like anything else. You can have a diamond ring in the window, a real diamond ring, a one-carat, two-carat diamond ring in the window in an in a old cardboard box with dust on it and, and say, uh, this ring is only $9.95. And, and people will say, well, you know, that's all it's worth. It's only, it's only $9.95. That's all its value is. Yep. And then you could put a, 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 what do you call those fake diamonds? Oh, uh, yeah, the cubic zirconians. Cubic zirconians. Yeah. You can put that in a nice shiny box in a well-lit display area and say, this is $9,000 for this two-carat ring. And people will go, oh, my God. I got that. That's a great, that's a beautiful ring. And it's 9000 It must be worth $9,000. It's you all in the package. Sale, half off. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> like, what? This thing is worth $18,000 on a moment. We can- <laughs> that's right. So that analogy goes to presentation. If you present yourself as very inexpensive, think people are going to think that you're a low-end speaker. Uh, so you have to stay within the bounds of what the industry is is used to paying for speakers. And that's where you get those guidelines from like the speakers associations, things like that. Uh, I said my first speech was 5,000. Um, my last speech where you were, you were present at, and there was one you wasn't present at, was many, many, many times more uh, money than that, but um, I, I guess my philosophy is, you know, uh, you, you're you're going to promise them a good presentation, but go out and give a a great presentation. You you follow me? Yeah, Don't just give what they expect. Give them more than they expect from you. Yep, I I, I see that all the time. You got to. Over deliver, under promise and over deliver, right? That's, That's what I was looking for. Under promise and over deliver. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Thank you for all that. That's like a whole bunch of information. See, I knew it was <laughs> just just that conversation because I I truly need to. Um, I'm trying to develop that speaking aspect of myself. Mm-hmm. And, um, 
and I've been asked back from like the ASSP a few times and I spoke there, but uh, I'm trying to develop even more to uh, keynote side. I've always been the, the person where I'm getting paid by getting free admission or they're going to pay my hotel room like Louisiana when I speak there. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I've never gone to the keynote side, so it's 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 a personal goal only because I feel I could do it. I just I just don't know how to you know crack that that code yet, you know. So it's one of those things I've, um, I'm like a you know like the jilted lover when the dolphin <laughs> you know she dumps you and you're like I gotta get her back. <laughs> um, I, I got that feeling with keynote speaking. You know, I really want to go out there and, and become a keynote just to have it on the the resume. Uh, well, I I tell you, uh, uh, Sheldon, um, there's a very one of the most one of the most well-known speakers. Uh, I think is um, uh, what's his name? He was married to Gladys Knight. Um, married to Gladys Knight. I, yeah, you know what? I do not know that one. Oh, oh I, I, I don't want to say his name because I don't want to get it wrong. But I took his class in person. He right. He was right behind Zig Ziglar in the number one speaker in America. He was right behind Zig Ziglar, who's every you know, most people, everyone who's speaking knows who Zig Ziglar was. I mean, he <clears throat> he developed techniques for speaking. And um, I I was in his class, uh, this gentleman, and uh, he was saying I was saying that uh, I was afraid to get out there and talk to people and am I too old because I didn't start really professionally speaking until I was in my 50s and he he said first of all you, you gotta get out there he said but let me give you an analogy he said there's a man in the in the jungle he's walking and he gets bitten by this poisonous snake very highly venomous snake and the guy goes down he's only got maybe an hour to live these two other people come up one was PhD doctorate twice over in uh, 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 medical science. The other guy was a high school graduate, just a high school graduate. And uh, he looked at both of them. He said, I needed help. So the PhD started talking about all these um, philosophical ways of curing a poisonous snake bite. He looked to the high school graduate. The high school graduate says, well, I knew I was coming on a camping trip and I knew it was going to be some poison snake out here. I just happened to have the antidote in my hand. Now, that guy who's on the ground, who's dying of a snake bite, uh, who do you think he's going to want to assist him? The guy who's giving him all this physical, uh, philosophical information with all these degrees or the high school graduate who's got the cure. He's going to say, give me the high school graduate. That's the point right. of that story is <clears throat> you don't much have to have degrees and all these accolades, although they help. What you have to have is the cure. Do you have a solution for the problem that the people in the audience are, 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 are experiencing? Do you have their solution? And in that vein, I was given a really good information. It was Stay in your lane as a speaker. You have to be able to say no to some engagement because that's not your expertise. It's not your expertise. 
stay where you are proficient. Because if you don't, your reputation is going to get just tossed around. Uh, he was he he was all right, but he really didn't know that much. But if you stay in your even if it's a narrow area, until you gain an expertise in another area, stay in your lane. And there's going to be a lot of people who may come to your presentation and say, wow, that guy's a great speaker. And he was talking about safety and occupational health. But I want him to talk about how to make ballerina slippers. (laughs) 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 Sorry, that's out of my that's out of my league. I don't know how to make ballerina slippers. I'm not going to speak there. So uh, you got to know how to stay in your lane. Stay where you're knowledgeable. Stay where you're comfortable. Yeah, I actually had something like that when I first got started as a consultant. And uh, uh, I started, of course, like, you know, on the environmental side first. And uh, someone reached out to me because I had a couple of articles that was printed in, uh, in some trade journals about wastewater math. And the people that did uh, uh, science direct people, uh, they actually contacted me and I'm on contract currently (laughs) for like, what, 10 years now uh, to write a wastewater math book. So much so that I I actually was writing this book. I've got hundreds of pages written. And when I told my wife initially, when I got the contract, she's like, you math? (laughs) (laughs) You know math and you know wastewater math, but you're not turned on or lit up by math. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the basic math, I'm, I'm like done, but you hand me something and then, you know, something with a engineering math, I'm in, you know, and she's like, and for me, I, I couldn't say no at the time. It was constantly, yes, yes, <laughs> any opportunity, yes. And, uh, and to this day, I still count it as, I don't want to say the greatest failure, but the greatest learning for me is I should have known when I signed that contract, I wasn't going to finish that book. And it ended up being what the, the, uh, the publisher called it a cocktail book. He's like, I, I don't want a cocktail book where you had a cocktail party and you're saying, oh, well, I'm an author or I've got a book coming <laughs> out. <laughs> that's exactly what it turned out to be. So I had written him somewhere about four or five years in and or not even it was maybe like three years in and uh i just said i i just don't have it in me i handed everything i had and it was only about a quarter of the book even though it was somewhere like uh two to three hundred pages it was only a quarter of the book and it was just so much it just overwhelmed me and i said it's not in my lane i just i'm sorry i even committed to this and and just backed out and that to me has always been my my story personally that says never again i'm not doing that again (laughs) right Right. we've all had those stories because we don't want to miss out on the quote-unquote money or good deal but it's never a good deal if your reputation suffers as a result of it so um, i felt bad because he he really had deadlines and he trusted me and uh i think it was like a year and a half to write the book and i you know three years in and i'm still telling them stories about why i couldn't get it done and i finally like oh, sorry i just can't finish this thing so somewhere there's a unfinished manuscript of me <laughs> <laughs> well that story will certainly help those who are listening about staying in your lane Stay because- in come back and haunt you. Yep. 
let's let's turn a little to osha i don't i don't know if you're you're far enough from osha to start giving secrets but uh <laughs> i know everybody that hires us and, and knows that you're from osha they love this part <laughs> okay but uh now with the COVID-19 scare and everything that's happening in our whole world, especially in the U.S. is turned upside down, I, I keep having to fight against people uh, only focusing on that without thinking about all the other hazards in the job. And then also thinking that OSHA's, you know, social distancing, you're not going to see OSHA come out anymore. So we're good. <laughs> whatever we need. Uh, what's What's the truth to that? If you are still an area director, this issue comes up. Uh, I, I don't know. When I left um, my state job, uh, we were dealing with uh, swine flu, and uh, that was the H1N1. And then before that, we were dealing with mad cow disease, and I had to do a whole bunch of pandemic preparation stuff uh, just because if we went down, we would have a whole utility system that would be down and we couldn't do that. So I was, you know, thinking of those things when uh, we were dealing with those pandemics. But in this one, I truly think it would be the same principle, but we would still have to regulate. We would still have to go out there and do stuff. So am I wrong? Is OSHA thinking the same thing? Absolutely. I mean, the only effect or one of the biggest effects that, uh, the Corona-19 has had on OSHA is, is so much how they do the job, not if they're going to do, do their job, but how they're going to do their job. And and because of this, they what they have done is they've, they've closed down the offices so that the inspectors no longer have to report to the offices. They have laptops, they have access to the office, the only time they have to come to the office is to drop down, drop off a finished file. And now they can email a finished file, but usually the assistant director might want to talk to the inspector about the file when he turns in. But that's about it. They do, they, they have this, when I was there, whenever we had a pandemic, we trained for a 10 time. We'd have this, this thing called the COOP and that's the program you use. What are you going to do when a hurricane hit or anything hit? where you cannot use your primary workstation. How are you going to still do your work? So they're going to follow that protocol. Only difference is now that the inspectors are not spending time in the office, guess where they're going to be spending their time? In the field. <laughs> so you're probably going to see a lot more inspectors or you're going to see OSHA out there a lot more now because they're actually in the field. There's no reason for them to sit in the office and uh, when they're at home, when I was a field inspector and they allowed me to work from home, I could do twice as much work at home as I could in the office. So these inspectors are knocking out these inspections and writing them up in the record time. And they're spending a lot of time out there just cruising around, uh, looking for obvious hazards, imminent danger, things like that. Of course, they got to do. They still have to do complaints and fatalities and imminent danger calls and things like that. Uh, but to answer your question, the difference is now you're going to see them a lot more often in the field. So local emphasis people, national emphasis people, um, yeah. some of the construction is easy pickings, right? That's a good day. Yeah. You go through a construction yeah. site, you're yeah. like, all right. Oh, that's Man, right. That's my day. <laughs> right. They can't just sit at home. They got to justify that pay. So uh, they're held to a standard of 
of work and they're held to the amount of work they're supposed to do and they're going to do it. And like I said, um, they're, they're going to, they're going to be out there. I, I talk to them a lot still now and they're just out there. They're, they're just hitting everybody they can find to, uh, to keep themselves uh, gainfully employed and busy. All right. And what about the, the EU's? Are they going to still go by the enforcement units and, and kind of uh, start packing in a lot of the, the low significance enforcement units? Or you think they're going to uh, start hitting some of the higher enforcement units since now they could, you know, hit the high ones and, and really look good when it comes time for that that annual review? <laughs> well, that's a good question, Sheldon. And the there's really not much they can do. They They can only they can only investigate those issues that come across their plate um, with the exception of exception of, you know, construction where you can see things out there happening and you see things wrong. You can just do the inspection, but for general industry, uh, the only way they can get into general industry is they get a complaint, a formal, non-formal, or it's one of the, uh, the uh, enforcement program issues and they'll get out there. So not, none of that has really changed at all. It's, it's really business as usual, except that now they're spending a lot more time in the field. Whether they do a $100,000 case or a, a $8,000 case, it's, uh, it doesn't affect them in terms of promotion or pay or anything. It's, it's across the board, stays the same. Yeah, so I guess uh, when they did create the the EUs, that 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 kind of um, even the playing field for all the people that are out with all the activities being, you know, all these nice construction focused inspections, getting them done real quick when one person is stuck on a PSM inspection and they're there for like right. two weeks. <laughs> you know, well, there is some validity there, and and I was doing that before it was made formal. Uh, we were given direction as assistant directors and supervisors to uh, to place the appropriate amount of weight on different inspections. Like you said, if an uh, inspector goes out and gets five inspections in a week and they're all construction site and they come back with each company is getting one or two violations per inspection. Well, okay, that's relatively easy. That's OSHA 101. But as you mentioned, you go out and do a PSM inspection or a fatality inspection, or a serious accident investigation, that takes a lot more time and a lot more experience to do. So I would tend to place a lot more weight on that inspection, and I would I would document uh, in my case files for my people when they did cases like that. I would I would document how much time it took and what the results were and how complicated. The case was in terms of uh, number of violations cited, the difference in, dif- in the violation cited, the technical aspect of the standard, as opposed to uh, a ladder not three feet above the landing, or or uh, or a, uh, a person not having a, a, a SDS for a chemical in the job. 
Yep. Or, you know, the, the gapping in the, in the scaffold planking. You know, right, right. That, yeah. That's gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, you know, you can send Ray Charles out to do that inspection. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, for, for those who are, because my, my show really speaks to the consultant and a lot of people who want to become consultants, uh, working with you, you've enlightened me quite a bit especially in informal conferences and, and dealing with that whole situation. That's a, a bread and butter from most of these consultants here that are especially U.S.-based. I do have people listening outside of the U.S., but on the U.S.-based side, uh, what's some tips that they should remember? Let's say a client calls them and said, hey, OSHA's here. Um, part of your, your, your contract is I need you to, to give me some sort of information on what to tell OSHA. And even starting with uh, you know, should you allow OSHA to come in or not? Because uh, most people, you know, they'll they'll leave the doors wide open. Come on in, OSHA. <laughs> uh, when what what would you tell your consultant uh, listeners here that are uh, actually consulting? And uh, when would be an appropriate time to to say no? This isn't a good time to to have OSHA come out. Uh, first, we need you to actually go get that warrant. There wasn't an imminent danger. There wasn't anything that they saw. It's not a local emphasis. Hold on, I'm answering no questions. Hold on. <laughs> Hold on. Let me let you answer. Keep going, Sheldon. Keep going. <laughs> Forget that. You answer. <laughs> so, well, OSHA's on my site. What do I do? Well. Okay, I, I'll, let me answer this question first. What should a good consultant, if you want to be a good consultant, what what things should you do? What things should you know? Yes. First of all, a good consultant should get the OSHA's field operations manual, the FOM, and they should study that like they're studying for a final exam, especially chapters four, four through six. Yeah. They, we're up to 163 now, right? The most recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the chapters I'm talking about is penalty, how to calculate penalties, what what the type inspections are, the categories, classification of citations, how a citation is written, all those elements. You have you really need to know those elements if you're going to represent anybody in an informal conference. You have to know. What is an informal conference? What takes place in an f- informal conference? What are your expectations? What can you expect out of an, in, an informal conference? And what things should you not expect? What can't be done in an informal conference? So you have to know the rules before you can assist an, an, an employer in being successful in an informal conference. So that's the first thing. Know the FOM. Second thing is I would get a copy of the OSHA Act. It's a very, very small document. And again, read that, and I mean highlight it, understand it, especially, you know, the, 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 the section on penalties, on uh, 11C and violations, you know, discriminatory violations, um, the, the, the inspections, the, the, the responsibilities, and limitations of an inspector during an on-site inspection. If you don't know that, you're just you're just another you're just another guy that says, "Hey, I'm a consultant," and you really don't know know what you're talking about. You really have to you really have to pump up on the front end. And of course, it goes without saying if you don't understand 1926 construction standards or 1910 
general industry or 1915 uh, maritime or 1928, was it 1928 uh, agriculture? If you don't know those things, I mean, <laughs> you're really doing your client a disservice. Now, do you have to know all of them? No, like I said, if you're starting out, focus in one area. If you want to focus in construction, get a 1926. And I would suggest start out with the, the four main elements or the four hazards that everybody, most employees are being injured by. Falls, electrocution, struck by, and caught in. You know, focus four. Learn everything you can know about scaffolding, ladders, uh, 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 working on roofs, um, uh, trenching excavation, cranes, uh, with electrical, 333, uh, 1926, 404. You really need to know those and get proficient in those. And uh, so that goes without saying. And then once you get that down, then you can start branching out. But again, there's sections in the standard, especially 1926 and some of 1910, that as a consultant, I hire other consultants to assist me with, like industrial hygiene. Come on. That's a, that's a science <laughs> in and of itself. So yeah. you start talking about chemical exposure and, and sampling and that type of thing, man, hey, I hired an industrial hygienist because I that's just beyond me. Yeah. Uh, to do it expertly, especially if the case goes to court, you, you have to have facts in, in your side to, to overturn the OSHA citation. It's not impossible, but you have to have the facts right there, readable, readily available, and the judge has got to be able to understand your point of view. It's not so, impossible because you did it. Yeah, I've done it several <laughs> times. <laughs> but, that, but that was my job when I was with OSHA as assistant director. My job as the lawyers used to tell me in OSHA, my job was to ensure that every case that came to the OSHA lawyers met prima facie evidence. And that's a legal term meaning that is it factual and does it support or all the elements support it? And that's what all compliance officers learn when they go through the initial compliance course in Chicago when they come on with OSHA. They spend a lot of time on prima facie issues legal aspects and if they know it you have to know it so and that's how, what the information you'll get out of the fom fom will really cover that kind of stuff and you could also get from the fom where the inspectors are leading towards uh the the actual citation because of the wording that they choose exactly or, is it going to be a willful is it going to be a repeat is it going to be a serious is it going to be a de minimis is it going to be a 5a1 is it going to be uh, other than serious, yes, you're right. You're absolutely right. You can tell by the questions where they're heading uh, yeah. during an inspection. Hey, had a that, question. That's, that's a very good point. With like stuff with five A one with like the uh, the gray things, you know, five A ones for for those of you that aren't familiar with the U.S. Uh, code, that is in the OSHA Act itself. That just basically tells a an employer, we don't have a standard for it, but you should know better. That's, right, <laughs> that's the spirit of that law. Right. We may not it, have spelled it out, but you should know better. Right, it, and if I could, I'll add one more element. Yeah. We don't have a standard. You should know better, and it's clear that it's a hazard. Oh, yes. Whether we have a standard or not, is this dangerous? Yeah. Okay, then you're responsible. 
Andrew Logan know around. a way to fix it. Because, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah, with right. those things, that's that's the basic element of what a 5A1 is. But for me, my question would be more of um more like the gray areas where they have uh, a construction subpart O with the with the the vehicles, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, moving equipment. Right. They have one just really ridiculous exception for uh, tired track hose versus the the uh, the rubber tire track hose versus the skid steers. Right. Why did they even do that? But if someone was, uh, let's say, an inspector cites you on that, and the inspection still, or I should say, the the rule says something about promulgated on the act uh, that the rubber tired is exempt. I believe is what they're saying. So basically, the the skid steer loader, the ones with the tracks, is included in subpart O, but the rubber tires are not. Are they going to cite earth moving equipment, or they cite five A one for something like that? No, in my in my humble opinion, if the standard says it is exempt, then you can no longer use that standard to cite that which is exempt. And if you look at all the construction, well, let me say, most of the construction standards, most of general industry standards, when you go to a section of a rule, it'll have scope, application, and definitions. Now, in scope, they're, that's where they're going to tell you this standard covers A, B, C, D, E, F, G. However, the following are exemptions to A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And that's where when I told you the consultant really has to know the standards, that point you made, how many people listening today even knew of that exemption? You know, how many people even know that there's an exemption uh, for fall in the fall protection standard, 1926-500, there's an exemption for people inspecting the roof. They don't need fall protection. Or how many people know that uh, that uh, and 500, you cannot use 500 to cite people working on steel erection or people working on ladders. I can't tell you how many people have told me that guy is on a ladder. He's more than six feet high. Doesn't he need fall protection? I just go, oh, boy, boy, boy. We're going to have a long day today. <laughs> That's because they don't read the exemptions. It's just as important to read the exemptions and the small, real fine print, they put that there for a reason. And every compliance officer has read it. If you don't read it, you will get yourself in a lot of deep trouble because, uh, because of your lack of knowledge. I'm speaking as a consultant now. Yeah. This is you explained about the, the, the clarity of that motor vehicle standard. There's a lot of standards out there like that. And believe me, um, myself included, a lot of OSHA professionals learned that lesson sitting in the witness box in federal court because we made the mistake of citing uh, uh, the exempt issue and a standard because we didn't read it. I tell you, that's a very lonely place to learn that you must read all of the information. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And, and truly, if you're in a consultant and you're making that kind of mistake and you do not have error and emissions insurance, you're oh, even boy. more in a world of hurt. That's right. 
That's, that's where that insurance really starts kicking in because you, uh, as a consultant, you're saying that you're setting yourself apart from just a regular safety officer and right. you have a certain degree of understanding, knowledge, and expertise that you could guide this company through this regulation wave of whatever. And if you're wrong, you can be sued probably not only whatever they're paying for their uh, their citation, but then what the legal fees are as well. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. But getting back to your question, what to, mm-hmm. I think you talked about, you know, how to go through an informal conference or what some of the tips I can give. Yes. If, if you're going to an informal conference, uh, the one thing you should not do is you should not come into an informal conference and say, um, we don't uh, we don't want to pay this penalty and this penalty is too high and we don't think this penalty is fair. Talking about money or the citations or what you don't like. I would advise each consultant before you go into an informal conference, you prepare a document and you cover all the issues that were in the citations that were issued to you, whether you agreed with them or not. You address each and every issue and make sure that in your address, you have all those issues corrected. And you can explain that by saying, although we may not agree with all these citations, we have taken the following corrective actions to ensure that none of our employees are exposed to this hazard moving forward. However, citation one, item one, you cited this. We disagree. This is why we disagree. So the point is, Tell them what you've done good first before you tell them what they did wrong. <laughs> yeah. Or what and, you think uh, they did wrong. What's the, I know the answer, but in your opinion, whenever you're on the other side as a regulator and you got either consultants or, or maybe even the, the owner themselves, who did you respond better to as far as their, their demeanor towards you and their, their wording and, and even the, you know, the way that they came at you with their questions? Uh, what's, what's your, what's your, uh, I know there's professional way of answering all this, but what was your gut feeling when you, you, you had different interactions with these type of people that would present their cases to you, which one was a good one and which one was not a good way to do it? Well, well <laughs> we're all human, right? Yeah. We're going to all form our opinions. And generally my opinion would be formed within the first five minutes of the conference. You're, you're going to set the tone. And generally, I, in my informal conferences, I would introduce myself. I would explain why we're here. And I would explain what's going to occur during the conference. And right after I tell you how the conference is going to be run, I will turn it over to you and say, now, this is your meeting. I'm here. Tell me about what your concerns are. And if you, if you come across as, well, those OSHA guys are nitpicky and, and they're doing this and they're doing that, and you never address the, the citations, okay, I already, I don't want to say this, but you're already going to have a hard day with me. You've already set the tone that you're just, you're not there for information. You're there for confirmation. And the confirmation is that you didn't do anything wrong. Well, sorry. <laughs> that ain't going to happen. <laughs> I'm here for a reason. You did something. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, you know, you, 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 people are human. You know, you, you pick up cues, you, you pick up uh, how they approach, how they talk. It, it, it's, it's a give and take. The informal conference is a give and take. 
if, if there's something wrong that, and you know it was wrong, you can say we correct. You don't have to admit that it's wrong. You can say this, this issue was corrected and leave it at that. And so, first of all, you come into the informal conference, tell them what you've done to correct this situation. Whether you agree that it was a violation or not, you've done what you've done to correct. Okay? Then you ask for what you want. This is a critical aspect that most consultants fail to do. They never ask for a penalty reduction. They never ask for citation one, item two to be deleted. Really? Or any of the other things. They just say, this was wrong, 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 wrong. And then they look at you. It's not well known that an OSHA uh, assistant director or director cannot assist you in your defense against OSHA. So he's going to sit there and he's going to look at you you're going to say, this is wrong, this is wrong, this. And he's going to say, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's just going to look at it. And if you stop there, he's going to say, well, is there anything else? And you say, well, we, we just think these things are wrong. Okay, well, well, I understand your concern, but these are the citations. This is what the citations say. This is what they are. He's not going to say, well, you know, you should ask me to delete that citation. Or maybe you ask me to reduce the, the penalty amount. He can't say that. He cannot assist you in defending yourself against the government. So a lot of consultants in my time, they would come in there, even some lawyers, they would rant and rave about what was wrong, but they never asked me to do anything. So really? I That's shocking to me. <laughs> Believe me, it happens. It happens. Wow, because that should be your that should be the goal and the purpose of being there is for a reduction. And then if you can't get it on the local level or it's not enough, then shouldn't you ask the region and say, hey, what, thank you so much for working with me. Is there any way that the region office might uh, might be you know, possible that they might give us an even more reduction in some of these? Is that OK to, to do? No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't go to the region if you want to remain cordial with that area director. Because that's like going over his head to the boss. Okay. I can tell you this though. That's a better way of doing it. <laughs> I I was an assistant director for fourteen years. Believe me, if you come in and you put together a cogent defense against a particular citation, before we say no to you, I would usually say. Give, excuse me for a moment. I need to talk to the air director. I'll talk to the air director. If he's not strong either way, the next phone call is going to the region. And you're going to talk to the regional administrator or deputy region administrator. And we're going to get there okay to do something? Or they're going to say, no, this is how it is. And, and all the offices do that because the region wants to maintain consistency on citations. They don't want the Tampa office to be reducing penalties by 80% and then the the uh, the, uh, my, the uh, Fort Lauderdale office only reducing penalties by 10%. Well, that's that's inconsistent. Or just across the board, final decisions, if there are any question, if the policy is not clear from the region to the, te- to the area office, how to handle something, or if the FOM is not clear, or if a CPL compliance directive is not clear, the next call from the area director is going to the regional administrator. And the regional administrator will generally contact the regional solicitors to make sure that we're not breaking, uh, we're, not, we're not violating any policy from our solicitors 
And then when you get an answer, you'll know that answer, uh, the air director will feel comfortable because he's got that answer straight from the regional solicitor, the regional uh, administrator, from the deputy administrator, right down to the air director. All right. Well, good, because I actually have been telling students, I said, well, it doesn't hurt to ask the region. So here I'm telling people. <laughs> it can hurt. <laughs> uh, uh, see, everybody listen to Kevin. Forget what I said. Listen to Kevin. Yeah. Usually, if you call the region, they're going to ask you, is this an open uh, open inspection? Yes, they're going to they're gonna say, well, you need to talk to the area director. I don't want to comment on ocean inspection. Or you'll say, I'm in an informal conference. Well, you need to talk to the air director. If I need to hear, if I need to hear anything about this investigation, the area director will contact me. All right. They I'll... just they don't like to get involved and cut the legs out from the air director. That's his office. He's going to run it as long as it's not violating directives or protocols set forth by the regional administrator and regional solicitor. Yeah, that's why he's the director. He he makes those calls. Now, of course, if you really don't agree, as you know, Sheldon, you still have a fallback. You just simply contest. Yep. And then you have your day in court. And you bring that notice of contest with you just in case because you're on that clock. Right, right. Bring the notice of contest with you. Yeah. I, uh, switching gears again, but kind of similar to uh, to what we're, we're on uh, with the OSHA side, let's say you're you're consulting people that want to get past compliance and they want to start talking about uh, culture and they're going for for VPP. You know, how should you work with those people like, to get them past compliance and get them into that VPP uh, uh, setting where they're they're truly going to go through the process and be in the voluntary protection program? Well, man, that's. That's tough. As you know, Sheldon, I was involved with the B VPP inspection team for five years where we we went in and talked to employers, talked to employees, talked to unions, uh, and, and tried to get them into that VPP culture. It, it takes anywhere for, between, for a good company, maybe two years to maybe five to six years for a company just starting down this road to get that philosophy to change. It's a whole different mindset. You have compliance and then you have VPP. Compliance is we're going to follow the rules by OSHA to the letter. Well, okay, great. Uh, that's, that's good. But if you do that, you're just a C student in terms of OSHA because we know that the OSHA regulations are minimum, the bare minimum standard. VPP companies seek to go beyond the minimum. They follow um, industry practice. They follow best practices. They follow ANSI. They, find, they, they follow ISO. They do all these extra things, not simply to ensure compliance, but to ensure the longevity of the company, the, the, the morale of the company, mm -hmm. to ensure incident rates are down, uh, accident rates are down, lost work days are down. All those uh, those lagging indicators are down, and they focus more on the leading indicators. What's happening that didn't result in the accident that we can take care of in the bait? Their their whole philosophy is preventative rather than reactive. Hmm. So it truly takes for someone who is uh, who gets a client that wants to do that. You're like, yes, <laughs> this person gets it. Yeah, yeah. You and and and. 
I've seen uh, where, when I was involved in VPP inspections where they would have a consultant or a lawyer and they would be, those people would be more concerned about what the company has to or does not have to do. And they never get the fact that, you know, if you just want to do what you have to do, well, you don't really want to be VPP. You just want to be compliant. To be, be VPP means you're going to go above and beyond what's required. You're going to get to a standard that's above the fray. You're going to be a standout. And of course, you know, the more you invest in, in uh, uh, the safety and morale of your people, the more you'll get in return. Mm. That's good. Now, I, I know we got business to do. That's where we're actually on this call. So, and I said, <laughs> I'm going to hijack our business call and get you in an interview. <laughs> so uh, let me ask you one last question. Um, what would you tell younger Kevin that's just about to start with OSHA as older Kevin that's that's actually now in the consulting field and you've been through all the things? So what, what do you what do you tell yourself and, and how would you prepare yourself for what you're just about to do in the next almost 30 years of your life? Uh, that's easy, Sheldon. What I've learned and I think I've been in safety now 37 years is that educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself, educate yourself, and always be the professional. Look at things as they are, not as you want them to be. Don't put rose-cutter glasses on, especially when you're working with a client that needs to be told the hard truths about how poorly his company is operating. But when you tell them how poorly they are, be prepared to give them solutions to bring them above where they are. Don't just say, oh, boy, your company sucks. All right, have a nice day. <laughs> Peace. Deuces. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> you know, your company is facing some challenges, but fortunately, I have a solution to those challenges. It's we, we, can, we can get this under control, but I need a commitment from the top that these things, are, you're going to be behind me. I have management commitment and employee support. So what I, what I would tell the younger Kevin is, like I said, uh, first, my foundation was would be take all the, you know, the 10 hour, the 30 hour, the 510, the 500 uh, specialty classes, fall protection, trench excavation, machine guarding, get all the information you can on that subject and then team up with somebody who has experience, who's been out there a while, get, get someone like me to help you out. I, I've, I've actually even volunteered. I don't do it so much anymore, but I volunteered to help people just getting in the field that might have taken a, a class that I taught for one of the universities. And, and they'd say, well, I'm giving my first 30 hour. Uh, can you give me some pointers? Well, I may ask, well, where are you giving it? Oh, we're giving it right over in Tampa. Okay. I tell you what, how about I come in and I give the introduction to OSHA for you. And then I stay there for the first day. And after you're finishing for the first day, I'll give you some pointers and things you can do better or things you can improve upon and give you, you know, that 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 send off that you that that can help you. Yeah. So seek information from from your peers. Join professional organizations. I can't stress that enough. Join professional organizations like ASSP or uh 
uh, whatever uh, professional organizations. If you have a particular industry that's that's unique, join that professional organization associated with that industry, so you can start educating yourself as to what is important, what's on the horizon, what are new developments, how to better do some things that you've been doing in the past, but now we've d- determined there's a better technique of doing those things. So stay ahead of the fray. Get yourself educated. Stay educated and and uh, go to also go to conferences, those professional conferences where they have machinery and equipment. Find out what's the new, what's the latest gadget what's the what's the newest mechanism for for a machine garden or for fall protection or for respiratory protection you always have to stay ahead of that and um that those are about the things that i would say and 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 keep an open mind well let me just add this one thing i think is very important develop a personal philosophy develop your personal philosophy mine came late in life, but my personal philosophy is that safety is not most important, but it's always important. You know, when we're, I, I go to companies and say, well, our our, our um, main goal, our, our, what is it? our goal is to be safe. Uh, no, it ain't. Your goal is to build air conditioners. <laughs> Your goal is to build houses. Your goal is to, to build equipment, but you do it in a safe manner. Okay, that's that's what I believe. Develop your philosophy. And when I say develop your philosophy, you have to draw a line in the sand of which you will not fall below. You'll get some companies out there that just want you to hang around to come to their rescue when they get in trouble with OSHA. And I've had many of them come to me because of my experience and to come and sharpshoot OSHA. I said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. Or if I take the job, I said, well, you have to also agree to 30 hours of of, of training from me to your people. You have to agree and you have to pay for it. So not only you're agreeing, but you're paying for it up front. So I know you're committed. Yeah. So yeah, you have, you know, have your philosophy. Don't go below your standards and uh, just, just be a professional and don't promise the employer anything until you know all the facts. <laughs> yes. me, boy. Employers will come and tell you, well, I had this happen and those guys did this, 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 this. And then when you look at the case file or talk to the investigator, you go, wait a minute. Uh, that, ain't, that, that employer didn't tell me the whole truth. He just told me his side of it. So yep. know all the facts before you make any suggestions or recommendations. Know all the facts. Going to be a 10% penalty on my fee if you lie to me. <laughs> <laughs> I will, I will slap you if you like. <laughs> One kick to the nuts. <laughs> Just don't lie to me. Right. <laughs> well, I really appreciate this, Kevin. Uh, I I know we're gonna have to do another one of these for my audience sometime because I didn't talk to you about all your type of investigations you've done. I didn't talk to you about your your philosophy on safety itself. I didn't even talk to you about some of the other things that you you, you do and you know your other life as you know volunteering when you know you've retired now from the police department and volunteering yeah. and your scary stories on on handling nuclear <laughs> <laughs> you can't have a bad day when you're <laughs> handling nuclear <laughs> there are no bad days <laughs> no no I, i'm here that means it was no bad day 
That's right. <laughs> You're here. <laughs> Are you plugging anything right now? You got anything going that you want to plug? I'm I'm getting heavy back into training now. You know, 10 hour, 30 hour, and especially training like fall potential, trench excavation, scaffolding, that type of thing. I'm going to get much heavier into that. And of course, I'm always available to assist companies who may have received a uh, citation and want to know, okay, what do we do now? And what's the appropriate way to, to handle these things? Um, I'm well known in the, uh, in the southeastern United States and even in the northeastern because I'm a very talkative guy and I've been around a long time. So um, I know a lot of the players in OSHA. I have a lot of respect for the players in OSHA. I, I can pretty much walk into any OSHA office in the southeast United States and talk directly to the area director without, without any problems. So, yeah, those are things I'm working on. I saw one of the regional uh, directors while I was in, um, I was te- I was doing a seminar or on uh, at VPPPA, and I was going down the the elevator and I saw one of the the regional directors and I remembered his name. I saw it on his badge because of you mentioning him, and I said, "I know Yarbrough," and he went on. He was just he just gushing over you. <laughs> I'm like, yep, that's Kevin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, over, well, you can imagine over 24, 25 years of working with these people to do some hard fought investigations, some hard fought court cases, um, uh, being selected for the secretary's um, uh, uh, exemplary achievement. I was selected three times or received that award. A lot of people go through their career in OSHA and never receive one. But uh, when you get involved with, with heavy-duty investigations, you meet a lot of heavy-duty people, both in OSHA and outside of OSHA. And I approach it not adversarial, but in the, in the spirit of understanding. Let, let me first seek to understand, then to be understood. That's been my philosophy. I seek to understand, then to be understood. I bet you Disney and, and SeaWorld are glad you're on this side of the <laughs> Yeah. Well, I used to go to Disney World when I have no inspection. Just ride all the rides. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Well, uh, I am going to officially end this unless you have an email, and then we'll just do our business. Well, yes, you can take my email. It's yarbro.kevin at gmail.com. That's Y-A-R-B-R-O-U-G-H dot k-e-v-e-n at gmail.com my address is p.o box 738 you're giving an address too yeah, yeah. p.o box you can't come to my house but you can <laughs> <my P.O. laughs> oh man uh, i love these people Val rico florida 33594 uh if you go to shellbro.com shell is the sheldon part bro is the yard bro part uh, shellbro.com I believe that address is on that site and uh, what I'll have to do is um, I believe we got a we got a group page which is like an about us you'll see Kevin's profile or bio you'll see my bio on there too uh, so what I'll need to figure out how to do is get our calendars up there so if yeah, we could do I that doing that for a long time yeah I know I think I found a way of doing that. So if you guys are going to go to shellbro.com, maybe not uh, right away, but within a week or two, I'm going to have this up. And uh, this interview, Kevin, for your sake, is going to go up tomorrow. I'm going to have, I'm going to edit it and throw it up tomorrow. Do you want to be a safety consultant? 
Listen to Dr. J. Allen of Safety FM give his experience after taking the Safety Consultant Blueprint course. I have actually done research on different consultants and looked at different consulting courses and so on. There is a pretty fancy, very expensive consulting course that is out there. I have actually purchased the consulting course, was interested in it. It has good information. Don't get me wrong. But you have a consulting course that really drives people onto focusing on safety and how to become a safety consultant. I will tell you on your particular course, there was better information in that particular regards than the other consulting course that was more of a generalist form. But I figured I felt like I got more information out of yours on you giving people direct path on what to do step by step. But I really think that you have a genuine good product there that can really assist people if they're interested in becoming a safety consultant. Register for the Safety Consultant Blueprint at www.safetyconsultantblueprint.com. Enter code PODCAST for a special discount. Welcome back to the Safety Consultant Podcast. And first, I'd like to thank everyone for uh, just enjoying the podcast so much i i thank you for sending me your your emails and your uh your touch base messages with me on linkedin and everything so if you're on linkedin it's linkedin.com slash in slash sheldon primus uh if you want to email me it's sheldon at safetyconsultant.us and uh for those of you that just you know been on my newsletter for a while and just replies back to my newsletters which is really good uh and you've been just giving me some really good feedback on the show thank you thank you so much for that i i truly appreciate that and uh for those of you who do not know i've also started a safety consultant website and it's called safetyconsultant.us and in that group it's a membership group and we truly have started that out and by we i say me and the other people that are currently in the group so uh we're getting some more interaction and building a database and uh it's truly uh, one of the things that i envision to have that is helping you grow your business in an organic way month after month and i truly want this group to be something that will be a virtual mentorship for you for your business so uh, i want to thank everybody for that if you haven't liked or shared this uh, podcast please do that that'd be awesome if you have any questions for kevin uh he gave you his email i throw out his p.o box and everything go to shellbro.com uh, I'm actually Sheldon at Shellbro.com. Kevin is Kevin at Shellbro.com. And you can uh, reach us that way. And Kevin spelled K-E-V-E-N. So don't forget that one. You need the K-E-V-E-N. So here's the tip of the week. Something that Kevin said, and we kind of went over it too on, on my end, and that is staying in your lane. And it has a big connotation to that. And it reminds me of a group question this week. Uh, someone in our group posted that uh, they wanted to know more about insurance and personal personal liability insurance and then claims as it comes to teaching. So if you are teaching a subject, someone gets it wrong to the effect that it is going to affect the employer, can you be sued for it? What is your liability is really what it boils down to, that question. So uh, 
the answer is yes, <laughs> you can, uh, depending on, you know, if you have any kind of proof for tracking on proficiency. Uh, do, do you have a disclaimer that this is only dated information and it's not indicative to every situation that you're going to see? All those kind of things that you're really going to start thinking about just to, to add wording. And then to boot, you should have your error and omission insurance. That is an important thing to do. So to lessen the chance that you're going to get liability by your training, it's always good to stay in your lane. So if you know certain topics better than others, if you're not going to go through the classes and training and mentoring and uh, whatever you need to do to advance your proficiency in a new topic, then that's okay. Stay with the topics you know of. And for me, I have to continually monitor this for myself because I am a SME for a lot of companies and SME is subject matter expert. So I write a lot of uh, programs either online or, or something that will be delivered in person. And that type of work means that I am asked to do a lot of things. And there's some things people send to me and say, hey, we need a course on this. I'm not your guy. I know nothing about this. I can't help you in this area. I'm sorry. I would love to be able to help you in this area, and I can't. Uh, some things I actually know a little bit of. I'm not the expert, but I know enough that I can help you with the course, or I, what I end up doing is subcontracting those to people that I know can help even more. But again, it's me staying in my lane as best as I can, and then pretty much making sure that I am going to uh, deliver that information to everyone that uh, is receiving it in my words, in my uh, thoughts, in my process that I am truly the expert in this. However, if I need to cite someone else or get a subcontractor, then I am giving them the credit. <laughs> this is coming from them. And that's truly uh, how I, I, I break it up. But that whole concept that Kevin said is, you know, just brilliant and beautiful. It's something that you've probably heard before. It's important that if you want to uh, grow as a consultant to stay in your lane and grow that first and then go ahead and learn something else so you could get some widen your lane. Let's say it that way. Widen your lane by understanding different things. So that is the tip of the week. And I really, really enjoy you guys listening to me. So have a wonderful rest of your week and go get them. This episode has been powered by Safety FM.